sisters and brothers in our Lord Jesus Christ, this story over the course of three chapters takes us into the very heart of darkness. A story of terror, of violence, of wickedness, of the absolute failure of God's covenant people. What begins as a domestic dispute between a Levite and his concubine becomes a grisly scene of rape, murder, and dismemberment. And yet in response to this outrageous act of wickedness, the men of Israel become complicit, complicit in the kidnapping and forced marriage of 600 more young women and the murder of countless others. The rape and murder of one woman becomes the occasion for sin upon sin. And sadly, this story is all too relevant today. All too often, we hear in the news the sobering statistics of sexual assault, of violent abuse, of wanton murder, and outrageous deeds of wickedness. We hear stories of victims brutally dismembered, their bodies scattered, lives and bodies violently torn to pieces. We hear of wars and rumors of wars, nation taking up arm against nation in the quest for power and land and resources that diminish human lives to mere collateral damage. In our lives of comfort and of privilege, it's all too easy for us to simply turn a blind eye. We see the news and we sigh. Maybe we offer a quick prayer of thanks to God that we don't have to worry about such things before we change the channel or turn off the TV. But for too many people around the world, even here at home, the unyielding machinations of dehumanizing oppression is the story of their life. For them, there is no turning the channel. There is no option to turn off the horror that they see. For the least of these, this is their story. The presence in scripture of stories like this one is a reminder to us all that we cannot turn a blind eye to violence or to misogyny or to wickedness. Stories like this one remind us that by Christ's own spirit, we are united, bound together with the least of these. Stories like this one confront us with the humanity of victims, with the oppressiveness of social structures, and the need for us as God's people not only to lament the reality of sin in our world, but to work by God's grace to make our world a place of peace, a place of life, a place of flourishing. Peace, life, and flourishing certainly do not characterize this story. We begin our story of nameless characters with an unnamed Levite from the hill country in Ephraim 
who travels to Bethlehem, a parallel and juxtaposition to our last story, which was about a Levite from Bethlehem who travels to the hill country in Ephraim. The Levite takes an unnamed concubine, a status of lesser wife that is little better than a slave. And over the course of time, she leaves him. Our text says that she was unfaithful to him, but that might be unfair. Because in Hebrew, since there's no option in Hebrew society for a woman to divorce a man, this is the only way to say that she left her husband. The Greek text of this passage says that she became angry with him, making the separation the Levites' fault. But the Hebrew text leaves it ambiguous. It leaves us wondering who is at fault for this separation. The Levite's concubine returns to her father's house in Bethlehem, and the Levite sets out to bring her back. Our text says that he went to persuade her to return. And this is an idiomatic rendering of a Hebrew phrase, which means something kind of along the lines of, he went to speak tenderly to her heart. He went to speak tenderly to her heart. The Levite sets out in his journey, intending to speak tenderly to his concubine, to offer her kind words, perhaps words of repentance, words of comfort, to touch her heart and persuade her to return. He heads out to speak tenderly to her heart. But these good intentions go unfulfilled, because over the course of the story, we find that the Levite speaks to his concubine only once. Only once. The -the over-the-top hospitality that the Levite receives at the house of his father-in-law reminds us, who have been traveling through the book of Judges these past months, of the -the over-the-top hospitality that Jael showed to Sisera in the story of Deborah right before she drove a peg through his head. And so in this context, this outrageous display of of hospitality here at the end of the book of Judges should actually set us on edge, put us in suspense, waiting to see what outrageous violence will follow. And the scene that follows is horrifying. The Levite and his concubine turn into the town of Gibeah in the territory of Benjamin, where they find no hospitality. They sit in the square all day until an old man, a sojourner in the town from the hill country of Ephraim, begs them to come and stay with him rather than spend the night in the town square. And while enjoying the hospitality of this old man, wicked men, The Hebrew uses the phrase, sons of wickedness, pound on the door and demand that this visitor be handed over to them. The old man refuses, protecting the Levite man as the laws of hospitality demand. But the laws of hospitality don't protect women. And so he offers the women in his house, in his stead. The Levite doesn't miss a beat. He barely waits for a response before he takes, actually the Hebrew uses a word that's closer to snatched. 
he snatched his concubine and threw her outside into the darkness, into the arms of evil men. When morning comes, we finally hear the words that the Levite speaks to his concubine. Up until now, he has spoken to her father. He has spoken with the old man. He's even had a brief exchange with his servant. But even though his intention was to go to his concubine and speak tenderly to her heart, the only words he speaks to her in the entire story are not tender words spoken to her heart, but commanding words spoken to her broken body. Get up. Let's go. The woman doesn't respond. One of the more strange and horrifying things about this passage is that the text never tells us when the woman dies. Does she die there on the threshold of the door? Does she die on the rough ride home on the back of a donkey? Or does she, as some commentators suggest, die when she is dismembered by her own husband? The story doesn't tell us. The truth of the matter, though, is that she dies many times in this story. She is killed by the wicked men of Gibeah. She is killed by the cruelty of her husband. And she, has, she is killed by the disregard for life in all of Israel that ensues. She dies a thousand deaths. Sisters and brothers in Christ, how do we respond to stories like this one? Certainly not as the assembled tribes of Israel who take this occasion to perpetuate sin upon sin, multiplying one rape and murder into tens of thousands. If you have your Bibles open, if, if you have your Bibles open, it's okay if you put them away. It, it was long and I understand. But if you have your Bibles open, turn to Judges 19, verse 30. In Judges 19, verse 30, the people of Israel tell each other, such a thing has never been seen or done, not since the day the Israelites came up out of Egypt. Think about it. Consider it. Tell us what to do. There's something in the Hebrew here that gets lost in the English translation. Because Hebrew doesn't have a neuter pronoun. There is no it in Hebrew. In the Hebrew text, the pronouns here are all feminine. Her, her, her. The phrase in our Bibles, think about it, is a translation of the Hebrew idiom, set your hearts on her. Set your hearts on her. And this is what the story invites us to do. To set our hearts on this unnamed woman 
to set our hearts on all the unnamed victims of violence and abuse in this world from the time of the judges to this very day. To set our hearts on all those whose bodies are broken, whose blood is poured out, whose lives are taken away, whose very humanity is denied them. People of God, we know that we live in a world of darkness, a fallen world destroyed by sin, corrupted in every way. We proclaim this truth in our creeds and confessions, and in stories like this, we see it all too clearly. There is no happy ending to this story. And I'm not gonna try and make one. There is no satisfactory answer to the outrageous evil that we see in this world. Some people try to pass the blame on others like the Levite did, absolving himself of guilt. But we know that we are part of this world. We too are corrupted by sin. We too contribute to systems of violence and oppression that deny people their humanity, their dignity, and even their lives. But scripture invites us to set our hearts on them, to consider the plight of the orphan and the widow, the poor and the foreigner, the prisoner and the lame. Scripture invites us to set our hearts on those whose lives are broken by sin, to repent of our own sins, to repair the wrong that we have done, and to reconcile one with another. Scripture invites us to lament the evil, not only in the world, but in our own hearts, and to work toward reparation. And we are able to do these things, not because of our own inherent goodness or strength, but because we worship a God who does not abandon us to sin and death, but saves us. And how does he save us? Not by bringing us up out of the world. Not by giving us an escape. Not by delivering us from the world. But by entering into it himself. Our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ comes down enters into this fallen world and speaks tenderly to our hearts. He endures the humiliation and sorrow of torture and death, absorbs it into himself. His body is broken and his blood is poured out. People of God, until Christ comes again, this horrible story will be repeated many times. We are not naive about these things. 
We do not deny them. But we can set our hearts on them. Following our Lord, we enter into the suffering of others. We stand by them. We fight for them. We lift them up. We mourn them. And we cry out with them in lament and protest. Come quickly, Lord Jesus, and deliver us from this body of death. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, and all God's people said,